chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, after the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up and preached, and of course, thousands were converted, and then at the end of Acts chapter 2, we're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In the book of Ephesians, we're told that for through him, speaking of Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone or being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You and I are part of the body of Christ, the temple of Christ. God's Spirit dwells within us. And as we come together, we are the church of Jesus Christ that's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, I have no intention, we're, we're beginning a series based off of the Apostles' Creed, and I have no intention of preaching the Creed. I'm going to preach to you God's Word, but I'm going to use the Creed to preach the Bible. And you'll see how that goes as we go along. Now, perhaps you're wondering, why would I bother with preaching using the Apostles' Creed as my launching pad? After all, a lot of times people say things something like this. No creed but Christ. No book but the Bible. Now that sounds pious, doesn't it? Sounds real pious. But I hope I can show you that we need to dig a little deeper than just cliches. In fact, the irony of saying no creed but, the, uh, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, the irony of saying something like that is actually that's a creed in and of itself. That's the, the irony of it. Many have made a creed out of creedless Christianity. When Jude, the brother of Jesus, wanted to write about the joy of the gospel, he first had to define the Christian faith. And Jude put it like this. He said, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You see, there's a, there's a slight problem with saying with just saying, I should say, we believe the Bible. Now, we do believe the Bible, or at least I hope you do. And that sounds noble, but the problem with that is, I don't know if you've noticed, but we're Bible Methodists. We say we believe the Bible. So does Baptist. So does Episcopalian. So do Catholics. So do Presbyterians. So do Jehovah Witnesses. So do Oneness Pentecostals. And many more all say, we believe the Bible. 
What's the problem? Well, we don't all agree on what the Bible teaches, right? Some of the differences aren't really that big of a deal. Like, sometimes we've parted way with other believers over really minor differences. And that shouldn't, I don't believe, be the case. Believe it or not, traditional Methodist doctrine taught that babies should be baptized. In fact, all early Methodist preachers, and from John Wesley to Adam Clark and in between, all taught that we should baptize babies. I know that's shocking. They're heretics, right? Throw them all out. We don't baptize babies. We dedicate babies. Now, I could make a case for why we should baptize babies, but I'm not going to do that this morning. My point is, we have differences, right? That's a minor one, I would say. But if you believe that Jesus was an archangel who briefly visited the earth, rather than the co-eternal, co-equal Son of God who was incarnated as a man, that makes all the difference in the world. What you believe about Jesus. But there are people who claim they believe the Bible who believe that about Jesus. Almost every heresy that has ever been advocated by men have been advocated for by men who claim to believe the Bible. So what do we do? One theologian put it this way. He said, if you do believe the Bible, then sooner or later you have to set out what you think the Bible says. What does the Bible, the entire Bible for that matter, say about God, Jesus, salvation, and the life of the age to come? When you set out the Bible teaching in some formal sense, like in a church doctrinal statement, then you are creating a creed. You are saying, this is what we believe the Bible teaches about X, Y, and Z. You are saying, this is what really matters. You are declaring, this is where the boundaries of faith need to be drawn. You're suggesting that this is what brings us together in one faith. Creeds have always been part of the faith. In fact, if you go back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, you'll find a creed. You'll find the Shema that the Jewish people would recite daily, multiple times daily. Jesus recited, that the apostle Paul recited it in 1 Timothy Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy from prison. Paul wrote from prison to Timothy. And he referred to what was probably an early creed. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. He says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then he says this, and this is likely an early creed. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Most likely that part there in the italicized text was some early creed of the church. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul quotes what's often called the Christ hymn, which was likely an early statement of faith by the church that Paul had possibly received from others. My point is creeds are biblical. Now, that's not to put them on the same level as, as Scripture. We'll get to that. But they're really a summary of what Scripture teaches. 
You can't read the Bible apart from some tradition. Randall McElwain, some of you know Randall McElwain, he put it this way. He said, a creed is a guardrail against heresy. Because heresy is a perpetual danger for the church, we need guardrails to keep us on the path of orthodoxy, which is right doctrine. We may disagree on some doctrinal issues, but the creed identifies teachings that are common to all Christians. One Christian may believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Another may teach a post-tribulation rapture. But all Christians agree, he shall come again. To deny the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed is to embrace heresy. We're going to talk about the doctrines that the Apostles' Creed articulates. Before we do, though, I want you to look with me in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I just quoted from chapter 3. Now I want to look at chapter 4. I'm actually going to read the NIV this morning because I like how it puts this. But 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Now stop and just think about that for just a moment. Some of the false doctrine that people are believing and following today is doctrine that has been taught by demons. That ought to cause us to stop for a moment and say, wait a minute, what we believe is important. So we better make sure that what we believe is sound doctrine. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry in order order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. God help us to be a people who set an example in those things. Then in verse 13, Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Watch your life 
and doctrine closely. A lot of people treat doctrine as if it doesn't really matter. And I've told you many times, doctrine is essential. However, doctrine alone is not enough. You can believe something in your head, but not believe it in your heart. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. But if you believe something in your heart, it will affect your life. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. There's a lot of people who claim to believe something, but their life doesn't back up what they say they believe. God wants us to have both together. Sound doctrine, sound practice. Together. But many people, when you look around, sound doctrine is, is a little difficult to find. Isaiah the prophet wrote, he said, Justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Boy, that's relevant today, isn't it? Truth is fallen in the street, as one version puts it. And when you depart from evil, you make yourself a prey for other people to prey on you, not pray for you, to prey on you. Truth matters. The church father Irenaeus of Lyons, he said this, he said, Error never shows itself in its naked reality in order not to be discovered. On the contrary, it dresses elegantly so that the unwary may be led to believe that it is more truthful than truth itself. So what's the Apostles' Creed do for us? Well, the Apostles' Creed helps us to watch our doctrine closely. Some people try to downplay, as I've mentioned, the importance of doctrine. They say things like, doctrine divides. But I believe Paul taught the opposite. He said, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God, the Father of all. Doctrine actually unites us. It unites us as one shared faith in the body of Christ. And the Apostles' Creed is a guardrail and a bond. Without guardrails, you'll soon run off the road if you're not careful. When we were in Colorado, we drove on what they call Bear Camp Road up in the mountains. You may have seen some of my wife's pictures. And it was pouring down rain. And that road is pretty dangerous. It's, it's dirt. And most of the time, you're lucky if you can squeeze two cars by one another. No guardrails. I got a little bit nervous. But there's another road just above it that they've shut down now because it's too dangerous, they, they think. Because apparently, maybe you'll run off the road. So they put guardrails up to help protect people. And the Apostles' Creed guards the truth. It unites us in the faith that was once delivered for the saints. It's been said that as the Lord's Prayer is the prayer of prayers, and the Ten Commandments is the laws of law, the law of laws, so the Apostles' Creed is the creed of creeds. And so we're going to talk about that. Now, legend has it, this is legend. Legend has it that 
when the 12 apostles were in the upper room about to leave Jerusalem, about to head out to the uttermost parts of the earth, that they discussed what was essential for the faith, what their essential preaching would be. And as legend has it, each of the apostles, the 12 apostles, contributed what they deemed best. And as legends tend to grow, this one did as well until in the 6th century, in a sermon that was falsely attributed to Augustine, they claimed that this, this meeting of the apostles happened on the day of Pentecost, and each of the 12 apostles proposed a particular clause in the Apostles' Creed. So you have, you have uh, the Apostle Peter saying, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. And then another apostle offering another one of the clauses. Well, that's a legend. We don't actually know who wrote the Apostles' Creed. It actually was developed over time very early. Uh, some have suggested as early as 120, the year 120. But it's been said that creeds provide a kind of idiot's guide to Christianity. You know what the idiot's guides are? They kind of give you the essential of a book. You can read the idiot's guide to whatever book. And it gives you what the essential part is. Well, if that's the case, you know, it, I guess you say it's, it, it gives us the essentials of Christianity. It doesn't tell us all that we need to know. But it gives essentials. Now you need to understand, we all need to understand that when the church began, the canon of Scripture had not yet been developed. Now the first 39 books of the Old Testament were known and accepted. But in the early days of the church, there was various, quote, gospels that were floating around. And there were many, quote, apostolic letters floating around, claiming to be from the apostles, some claiming to be gospels. And the truth, of the, I should say the church, had the challenge of affirming truth and confronting error. So the Bible, believe it or not, did not fall from the sky bound in leather in King James English. You may not realize that. Now, some kind of act like it did, but that's not how it came. The, the words of Christ were not in red yet, all right? Uh, that's not how we got the Bible. And so after the death of the apostles, how were they to distinguish truth from error? We know that the apostle John was the last apostle alive. After his death, how were they to distinguish between truth and error? Heresy became a problem within the church. For instance, Ignatius of Antioch, one of the church fathers, he wrote a series of letters to the churches in Asia and in Rome, and he championed what he said was a proper understanding of faith. He dealt with false teaching. He dealt with those who denied that Jesus shared fully and physically in the human condition. And there was a lot of apologists who arose, men like Justin Martyr. Some of these names... Hopefully you are familiar with. If not, you need to be familiar with. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, who I quoted earlier. And Irenaeus spoke of a rule or a canon that defined the faith of all Christians. And this rule of faith was the essential teaching of Christianity that all Christians believed and taught. And I'm going to quote from Irenaeus, and when I do, 
you, you should hear some echoes of the Apostles' Creed. This is what Irenaeus wrote. He said, The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ, Jesus, the Son of God who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God, the church, having received this preaching and this faith, although scattered throughout the whole world, yet as if occupying but one house, carefully preserves it. She also believes these points of doctrine just as if she had but one soul and one in the same heart, and she proclaims them and teaches them and hands them down with perfect harmony as if she possessed only one mouth. For although the languages of the world are dissimilar, yet the import of the tradition is one and the same. So what's Irenaeus saying? He's saying it's been passed down, the truth, of Christianity, the truth about Jesus has been passed down, and there's a united voice, one voice. Well, eventually, those essential core beliefs would be written down, and one of the forms in which they were written down is what we call the Apostles' Creed. Now, these creeds were based on the Old Testament and Christian writings, such as the Gospels, the letters of the apostles. But they're not inspired like Scripture, but they articulate essential core belief. I mentioned that there was apologists like Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Ignatius of Antioch, men like Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen of Alexandria, these leaders followed the apostles and were often discipled by them. And they had to determine what was essential apostolic teaching. So the process began to look something like this, all right, if you can follow this. So you have the Old Testament, right? You have the Hebrew Old Testament. Then you have Jesus, gives us the gospel of the kingdom. Then you have the apostolic teaching, and then you'll, you'll read in the church fathers, you'll read about Christian scripture. What they're talking about with that is they're talking about the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, plus the writing of the apostles. Well, then there comes what's known as the rule of faith. And Irenaeus and Tertullian, different ones, talk about the rule of faith. And from that, then came early creeds. And eventually, you get the biblical canon of scripture. And I'm going to show you why that happened here in just a moment. Irenaeus and Tertullian both said that the root error of all heresies was studying Scripture in isolation from the rule of faith. What they meant by that is the rule of faith was what was essential core belief about Jesus, who he was, and some would take what they claim to be Scripture. So you have all these letters floating around, all these so-called Gospels. There was the real Gospels, of course, that we have in our Bible. But then there was also other false Gospels, often Gnostic in origin. And Irenaeus and Tertullian said those who get into heresy are 
taking what they claim to be gospels, but they are in violation of the rule of faith, the essential core beliefs. Are you still with me? Anybody still awake and tracking with me this morning? I'm covering some background. We're going to get into the core of the Apostles' Creed next week, but I'm trying to show you where it came from. And so they began to develop creeds. They showed us what mattered most to the church. Well, as has always happened, there's always been false teaching. Always has been. And in the early 2nd century, so this is 100 to 200, false teaching began to creep into the church. Most of it was the threat of Gnosticism. I don't have time. Gnosticism is very confusing, but it still exists today. And I'm not going to get into it in depth this morning, but Gnostic heresy is still around in followers of people who claim to be followers of Jesus today. But again, remember, the canon of Scripture has not been closed yet. So they don't have just, they, they, they did not have a closed canon of Scripture. That would come along later. And as I said, the Bible didn't fall out of the sky. And so all these, these early, uh, these documents begin circulating among the church and false teaching begins to creep in. They have danger from without. The Roman government and, and different, at different times is persecuting the early church, gonna, putting people to death. If you, if you refuse to say Caesar is Lord, you'd be put to death. So you, you have men like Polycarp who would refuse to say Caesar is Lord. And as a result, he said Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And Polycarp's put to death, one of the early church fathers. But many of these men, Justin Martyr, his, his last name really wasn't Martyr. They just call him Justin Martyr because he was martyred. And the various ones of these were put to death for their faith. That was the threat from without. But the greater danger was the threat within the church because false teachings creeping in. Mostly through Gnosticism. Along comes a man named Marcion. Marcion, Marcion of Sinope. You can see his years he lived there. His father was a bishop in the church at Sinope. And his father would eventually actually excommunicate his own son from the church because of immorality. But Marcion wasn't content to be excommunicated from the church at Sinope. So he was wealthy. He had a shipping business and was wealthy. So he sailed off to Rome and you know, it's really not a new problem. Uh, oftentimes, people with money have a way of using their money to gain favor. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, Marcion went to Rome and began to ingratiate himself with the churches in Rome. Of course, you have house churches at that time. And, and so Marcion would go to the various house churches and give large sums of money. And he got in good with the believers in Rome. And he gradually began to preach his own version of the gospel, of Christianity. He taught that Jesus, or, or I should say he, he taught that God had a dualistic nature. That Jesus only appeared to be human. That the human body itself was evil. That's Gnosticism, by the way, and I've mentioned before the idea that all our hope is about being disembodied spirits floating around in heaven that's gnosticism our hope is not that our hope is resurrection of the body but 
Marcion taught that God had a dualistic nature. Jesus only appeared to be human. He denied the God of the Old Testament was the supreme God. He taught that there was really two gods. So one, the one God is the God of the Old Testament. He's mean. He's harsh. But the God of the New Testament is a nice God. Yahweh was the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is Almighty God. And he's a God of love. And so he sent Jesus into the world. And, he, and, and Marcion concluded that Christianity was the revelation of the one supreme God. And he, he decided that Judaism, since it was based on the belief in Yahweh, the creator God, and it was, it was a religion of law, and since salvation was based on love, God's grace, and law means servitude to the mean God Yahweh, Marcion then rejected the entire Old Testament. So, false teachings beginning to creep in. Marcion then begins to put together his own collection of writings that he said was Scripture. He took part of the book of Luke. He took out the parts he didn't like. He just kept the parts he did like. And he took, I believe, ten of Paul's letters. And he said, this is Scripture. So, remember, the canon hasn't been settled on yet the canon of Scripture. And so Marcion then takes parts of Luke and various of Paul's letters, then he writes his own introduction to them all, which he called Antitheses, and he published it as the authoritative Scripture for followers of God to use, followers of Jesus. Well, is that sound biblical faith? Of course, we realize that's not. The church father Tertullian summarized Marcion's views best. He, he put it this way. He said, Marcion's special and principled work was the separation of the law and gospel. And that heresy is still alive and well today. So Marcion said the Old Testament's bad and got rid of it. Does that sound familiar? It ought to because that heresy is still alive and well. The God of the Old Testament's mean. God of the New Testament's nice. That's what Marcion taught. Marcinianism is still alive and well. Well, what's the church fathers going to do about it? So you have the Orthodox Christian fathers, church fathers. Now they have a problem because Marcion begins to persuade people, and he actually persuades a large number of people to follow him. He's eventually he's excommunicated then by from the church in Rome, but as I mentioned, he still managed to lead many people away. Now, the reason I share all that about Marcion is to help you understand the challenges that the early church faced. So you have false doctrine creeping in, and so they need to articulate what is orthodox teaching about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, what really matters. And so Marcion's challenge required a response, and so the church began to compose a, a list of sacred Christian writings. But they also responded by the use of creeds. So when you come to the Apostles' Creed, it was probably used at baptism. 
You see, there's certain things that you say in the Apostles' Creed that you cannot say if you were Gnostic or Marcionite. So what's all this mean for us? Well, as one scholar put it, the best things about the creeds is that they conveniently sum up the main truths of Christian faith and they put them into a concise narrative that is meaningful and memorable. The creeds show us what is our common faith, or as C.S. Lewis put it, mere Christianity. Thomas Oden called it consensual Christianity. There is more that you and I have to believe than what's in the Apostles' Creed, but you cannot believe anything less than what's in the Apostles' Creed and be Christian. I believe we're coming to a time in which in our nation, minor differences between believers are going to become less important. Like we've divided over all kinds of silly things. Like I'm always amazed. We all have different views. I mentioned pre-tribulation rapture earlier. I'm always amazed that people believe in a pre-tribulation rapture because obviously the Bible doesn't teach that. I say that tongue-in-cheek. But there's some here that do. We don't separate over that. But there is some that do. In fact, if you look at many church doctrinal statements, there's a lot of church doctrinal statements that declare we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. My question is, what if you're wrong? We've made something that is of less importance, supreme importance. Like I could not go pastor in their churches unless I believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. I believe we're coming to a time in our country in which those minor differences are going to be of less importance because just to have somebody else who believes and lives for Jesus is going to be, wow. Because I've, I fear it's come, we're coming to a point in America where being a Christian is going to cost you something. Years ago, we took a couple youth missions trips to New York City, and when we did, you're, you're confronted because you're surrounded by evil, and you can feel it. And it's coming that way here. But I'll never forget, we're, we're in Washington Square Park and they're in the middle of that park, and you're just surrounded by evil. And I'll never forget, people would walk up to us, and immediately you knew they were a Christian. They didn't have to say a thing. They didn't have to look a certain way. You just immediately knew there was a difference in their spirit. Now, they may not have crossed every T and dotted every I like Bible Methodists do. But you knew there's a believer. You see, there are some things that are essential and some things that are less than essential. When we confess the Apostles' Creed in our churches, we're validating the apostolic faith and we're standing in solidarity with those who in every place and in every age have confessed the same faith. 
It means we confess one faith and one Lord as part of one church. And every Christian, as I've said, believed more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but you can't believe less. You can't believe less. Ancient Christians honored this creed. Martyrs recited the creed as they were going to their death. Protestant reformers continued to use the creed and use it to teach others. Christians who first said credo, that's the Latin word, which is translated, I believe, which is the first word in the creed, didn't do so lightly, but at the risk of their lives. So as they would prepare for their baptism, they would memorize the Apostles' Creed. And before they were baptized, they would say, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. And it meant something. We're going to have a baptismal service here in a few weeks. If you want to be baptized, you need to see me. But it means something. It means something. So what I want you to do, I want you to stand with me. It's not just mere words. Just saying words never saves anyone, and saying the Apostles' Creed won't save anyone. It's not about that. But if you believe these things in your heart, you're my brother, you're my sister. So I want to say this together this morning. Say it with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So what I'm going to be doing in the coming weeks is we're going to be taking each one of those phrases and we're going to be going to Scripture. And I'm going to show you how each of those phrases is thoroughly scriptural. But I wanted first to just give you some background this morning of what the Apostles' Creed is all about. I know this isn't, wasn't a sermon in the typical sense. But I hope you got something from it. I want you to be seated now, if you would. And we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And again, just like saying the Apostles' Creed can just be mere words, taking the Lord's Supper can just be mere routine. As some of you may know, I, I've been taking a master's class in this summer on the theology of John Wesley. Some of you have heard me talk about it. Wesley says this about the Lord's Supper. He said, The grace of God given herein confirms to us the pardon of our sins by enabling us to leave them. As our bodies are strengthened by the bread and wine, so are souls by these tokens of the body and blood of Christ. This is food, the food of our souls. This gives strength to perform our duty and leads us on to perfection. 
If therefore we have any regard for the plain command of Christ, if we desire the pardon of our sins, if we wish for strength to believe, to love and obey God, then we should neglect no opportunity of receiving the Lord's Supper. Then we must never turn our backs on the feast which our Lord has prepared for us. We must neglect no occasion which the good providence of God affords us for this purpose. So this morning, it's 12.06, but we're not going to miss this opportunity to partake 